to Mike and Becky. We with me to the book of Matthew, the 24th chapter, and we're going to look at one verse, which will serve as the basis for the morning message. Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. These are the words of Jesus, and I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible, and invite you to follow in whatever version you have in hand. Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. When 75 competitors from all over the world, representing their own nations, lined up at the starting point of the marathon in 1968 in Mexico City, these men had trained. Among them was one Stephen Akwari. Mr. Akwari was Tanzanian, and he had trained at the same level of height as the Olympics were going to be held. He had that advantage living in his country, which had such elevation. When he started the race, he had every desire and aspiration to win that marathon. He knew it would be difficult because of the nature of the race, but even more so because of the talent represented in those who were running. About one-third of the way through the race, over 26 miles, he was jostled by his competitors, not in any way to make him fall and hurt himself, but that's exactly what happened. It was not some little scrape on the knee. It actually was the dislocation of his knee. And not only that, he injured his shoulder as he fell as well. For all practical purposes, he was finished. There were only 57 people out of the 75 who finished the race. 56 had found their way into the arena where the three winners, the gold medalists, the silver medalists, the bronze medalists, would receive their accolades and hear thunderous applause and know that when they returned home, they would return wearing the medal which represented their competition and be honored in their nation. Mr. Ekwari's dream was dashed in that moment when he sustained the accident. The time was coming to recognize those who would receive the various medals when all of a sudden as they made their way to the dais where they were going to receive this great reward. Someone said from the far reaches of the stadium, which, by the way, was not heavily crowded, said, there's another runner coming. And sure enough, there was another figure who didn't run into the arena, but limped into the arena. It could hardly even be called a walk. It was Stephen Akwari. He made it to the finish line. There was great applause for him. After all the sports writers interviewed the medalists, some of them went to him and said to him, Mr. Akwari, why did you finish the race with such injuries? How could you do it? No one would blame you for stopping with such injuries. And he said to them, he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles 
to start a race, but to finish a race. If you know Jesus Christ, He called you to come and follow Him and get involved in the race. The Apostle Paul calls the Christian life a race. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Run the race so as to win. God called you and me out of darkness in His marvelous light. If we know Jesus, He called us not to be so-and-so Christians, but to be winning Christians. And the way in which we win is to endure into the end, not give up. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are on the edge of giving up. It wouldn't surprise me if there might be a person here who has already given up. You just sort of staggered in the room spiritually this morning. Well, the good news is it's not too late to get back in the race. The Lord wants to give you the power, and he does make it available to you. If you know Jesus Christ, you have the power to finish the race. And God wants that for all of us. This is his goal. He did not send his son into the world to save us from our sins just so we could be saved and go to heaven. He wants us to represent him well in the race of life that he's called us to. It's not without accident. Without any purpose, I should say, it's not an accident that the Christian life is often called a walk or a journey. And, of course, I've already alluded to the fact it's called a race. I'll never forget in the late 1990s, I can't pinpoint the exact year, probably 1997, 1998, a couple came to our church. It was warm weather, I remember that. They were European. They were from the nation of Holland although they had not lived much of their adult lives in Holland because Rude Middle, the man in the couple, was a representative. He was an employee and had been from the time he began working of the Phillips Corporation. And he had taken worldwide assignments. He loved to go to other cultures and other countries, and his wife, Anz, had accompanied him. Among those places that they were sent to work was uh, what we would call a large village in Portugal. And while they were there, they found their way to an evangelical church. Rude had been raised in the Reformed Church in Holland, the Netherlands, and Anz, also from the Netherlands, was Roman Catholic. In that little village, she heard the gospel and gave her life to Christ. Now, Rude had been indoctrinated intellectually regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ long before he ever met Anz, maybe even before she was born because he was quite a bit older than she. And prior to his leaving Holland to come here to El Paso to work in what is for the Phillips Corporation, he had a sit-down with his mother. She was in what we would call a nursing home. It's called an elder home there in the Netherlands. She was a devout follower of Christ. She was in her 90s by this time. And she had an ongoing conversation with Rude about the reality of his faith. And she would ask him every time they were together, Son, have you gotten on the train yet? And by the train, she meant, Have you started following Jesus? And he had said every time before, No, Mother, I am not on the train. She said the same thing again. She was like a broken record. Thank God for godly mothers who don't give up on their children. 
But he said, Mother, I'm not on the train yet, but my bag is packed. And I'm running as hard as I can to keep up with the train. So at the right moment, I can jump on it. And she said, Ruth, now is the right moment. Well, he left Holland without giving his life to Christ. But he made sure that Ans and he found a church in the neighborhood where they settled. It was this church. And they came that warm summer morning in the late 1990s. And that was the beginning of a relationship with this church which led him to give his life to Christ. He got on the train. Someone in this room may be like him. You've toyed with the idea of giving your life to Christ, but you have yet to give your life to Jesus. You're interested. You may be even, as it were, following the train. Maybe you've got your bag packed. You're ready to get on the train. Today could be the day of your salvation so that you can be fit to endure to the end and be saved. Now let me make it clear that this does not mean, this saying which is taken in isolation from Jesus, does not mean if you just grit your teeth and do your best and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do everything you know in your power that you will be saved if you hold on to the end. It's not what this means. It means that people who endure to the end give evidence of having been saved by the Lord. The Bible says in many ways that we have a certain security about our salvation. There's no uncertainty about it. If you have received Christ, if he has revealed himself to you, you've given your life to Jesus, you're not going to lose your salvation. Paul says it this way. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? He also says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, no one can take them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So understand, this passage is not about what it takes to be saved. It's indicative of a person who has been saved. And if you know the Lord, you're going to persevere to the end, not without some stumbles along the way. Maybe you just sort of give up and you're not going any further. Let me be careful to note this before we go any further. If you've given up, you're in a good place. You're here today, and there's some great truth embedded in when the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. What it literally means, be still, means to drop your hands, and then you can know that I'm God. In other words, take your hands off of the steering wheel and let God be the one who gives you direction and gives you the power to persevere until the end. This morning I'm going to share some things with you that I know are true. They're in the Word of God and that's all we have to know. If it's in God's Word, it is true. But I know from personal experience that God has given me these insights and they're not unique to me. 
probably many of you have these in your own way of thinking, enabling you to go forward and keep going in the Christian life, keep persevering in the Christian life. I'm going to begin with the one which I believe is, if adhered to, opens the door to all the others. And I am convinced if you will do this first thing, you will endure to the end for sure. And that is to cultivate the habit of listening to God. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 15, 4, Alan, if you'll put that up there, cultivate the habit of listening to God. In Romans 15, 4, this is what Paul writes. He says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance, that would be endurance, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Whose voice do we hear in scripture? <clears throat> we hear God's voice, actually. The Holy Spirit's the one who inspired people to write the Bible. We also know what Jesus himself said more than one time. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit of God is saying. We are people who know Christ. If we know Christ, we have the built-in equipment necessary in our hearts to hear. And we have the Word of God which is given to us to help us to hear the Word of God and hear the voice of God. You may remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with the three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John. You'll remember that they were visited, the four of them, by two impressive personages from history past, one Moses and one Elijah. These men did not live in the same era when they were here on earth. Hundreds of years separated them, but they knew each other because they'd both gone to be with the Lord and they undoubtedly had fellowship with the Lord in heaven. And they were talking. We don't know exactly what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were discussing, but in the process, as Peter and James and John were looking on with rapt attention and great wonder, because when they looked at Jesus, the Scripture says, the glory of the Lord came out of who he was internally, and it shone. There was no doubt about who he was. They were astonished. And then the voice of the Father was heard. They heard it. It was for their benefit. Moses and Elijah already knew it. And this is what the Father said. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is what the Lord wants for us to be and do. Listeners. And we have the privilege of being able to be taught. Peter, James, and John listened very carefully to Jesus. Before Jesus died, the night before, in fact, he was talking to his apostles, and these three men were there. And this is what he said, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything which I've said to you. James did not write a book. He was beheaded for his faith. John, we know, wrote what we call the Gospel of John and the three epistles that bear his name and the book of Revelation, the great apocalypse. And then Peter wrote 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 
but also most scholars believe that he dictated the second gospel, Mark, to John Mark. And it's his gospel. But they listened, didn't they? Aren't you glad they listened? And then they recorded what the Spirit of God led them to remember about what Jesus said and did. And we have this great record of who God is in Jesus Christ and what great things the Spirit of God did through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God still speaks to us today. Miracle of miracles. And He wants to get our ear. And we do well if we cultivate the habit of listening to God. I use the term habit advisedly. I don't suggest by using that term that we're just to get into some kind of ritual rut where we read the Bible and we've done it, close the book, go about the rest of the day. No, 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 no. What I'm talking about is when we have this relationship with the Lord where we understand that He wants to speak to us. As it said in the book of Isaiah 50, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Morning by morning, He awakens me to what? Listen like a disciple. The primary role that God wants for you and me is to be a listener. And he gives us access to that. Cultivate the habit of listening to God. Here's the second thing that's been so helpful for me along the way, and it will be for you too. Make Jesus your vision. Lots of people talk about their vision for their personal lives. They have a vision statement. I'm not knocking that at all. They talk about the vision that God's given their church. And I've always sort of wrestled with this, frankly. And it may be something that's endemic to my personality. It may not be something that's shared by anybody else. Maybe unique to who I am. But I know what the Bible says in Hebrews 12, too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And by the way, one of the translations translates that little phrase, author and perfecter, as the author, and I love this next description, and pioneer of our faith. He has blazed the trail. There's nowhere that you and I will go that he has not been already, and he calls us to follow him. I've already alluded to that, but how frequently when we look at the Gospels do we see Jesus speaking to different ones, and invariably he'll say, follow me. And to personalize that, And to contemporize that, he says, keep on following me. When he called me to be his child, to be his follower, and when he called you, he called us to fix our eyes on him. More than one person, including myself here, has played the childhood game, follow the leader. And you win by keeping your eyes on whom? The leader and do what the leader does. And we need to look at Jesus. Jesus says, I've given you an example that you may follow that example. Follow me. The Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's what he did in Ephesians 5. He says, imitate God. We're to follow the Lord. He's to be our vision. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above. Here again, it's a present tense command, which simply means keep on setting your mind on 
things above where Christ is. If you read the verse before, that's where Jesus is. We're to look to Christ. And when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're people who are going to endure to the end because he's headed there. And he wants us to follow him in this life. Whatever's left for you. We don't know how much any of us has left. We have today and we want to live today for the Lord. How do we do it? Following him. Here's the third thing that I've learned. And these things are not necessarily in order of importance after the first thing which I have mentioned. And that is we are to praise God in every situation. How does that happen? To praise God in every situation, Alan? In the book of Hebrews 13, 15, it says, Through him that is Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips which give thanks to his name. Actually, the word give thanks, that's the NASB translation that I mentioned, it really is the word confess. That is, the fruit of lips which Confess his name. What is the greatest name that Jesus has given by the Father? What is the greatest one-word name that he bears? What is it? Help me. Lord. It's Lord. And why is that so great? Because Lord suggests sovereignty. He is the ruler. He's the master. Everything is under his power. And consequently, when he is our Lord, we can then through him continually, this is wild, how can I continually offer up sacrifice of praise to the Lord, the fruit of lips that confess his name? It's because of who he is. It's because he's Lord. And the word Lord suggests sovereignty and suggests that nothing happens without his permission in the life of his children. That's wonderful to know. Because we have a lot of stuff which happens that's unexplainable, that's hard, difficult. We don't want it. We wouldn't even wish it on our worst enemy, some of the things that happen to us. But the reality is bad things do happen to us as God's people, for sure. But they're purposeful. Therefore, we can praise Him. And what praising God does, according to Psalm 22.3, the Bible says, Israel is enthroned on the praises of God. God is enthroned on the praises of his people, Israel. So God is put in his proper place when we praise him. We recognize his lordship. This is difficult, but if you haven't tried it, don't knock it. It's the way. What it does, it decentralizes me, gets my mind off me, and puts my mind on him who is seated in the heavenlies above. There's some other supporting passages. I'll just mention the First Thessalonians passage in chapter 5. It says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. Do you want to finish well in this life? Then establish this principle in your life that you will in everything give thanks. Praise God and thank God in every situation. Some of you are in dire straits today. I know that. But 
This is what will set you free from being dominated by that situation in which you find yourself. Here's the fourth thing. Know yourself. I ask that this was read. Thank you, Sam, for reading it so clearly from the Word of God. And this passage talks about how David understood that God made him in his psyche. He made him in his body. He made him spiritually when he came to indwell David. And David says this marvelous thing. It sounds so egotistical, but you can say it too if you know the Lord. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made in my soul, in my body, and in my spirit. This is who we are. There's much to be grateful for. There's much to revel in. There's much to praise God for when we reflect on what He has done in us. When we know Him, this is most important, then we can know ourselves. And there are two simple things that come out of this. They're simple, but they're profound and necessary for you and me to finish well. Here's the first one. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, I must not resist being who I am. Quit trying to be somebody else. Understand where I'm coming from here. Be in Christ. That's the beginning point. But once you're in Christ, be who you are temperamentally. Don't wish you were someone else. You have Christ indwelling you. Let Him rule in your life. Trust Him and be who you are. He did not make a mistake in that. And not only are we to be who we are, but we are not to resist doing what He created you to do or me to do. We all have certain similarities as far as what God wants us to do. We're all to follow Christ. We're to imitate Christ. But there are some qualifications that he puts in some of our lives for other kind of situations, either by geography or spiritual gifting or whatever. So don't wish you were somebody else. You've got Christ in your life. Be who he has made you to be. And in so doing, you can endure to the end. You know, nothing wears a person out quite as much as trying to be somebody he or she isn't. I've seen it all the years that I've been serious about following Christ. And I've wrestled with this myself, too. Not thinking that I was good enough. Well, I know in myself there dwells no good thing. That's what Paul says. But in Christ, I'm more than enough to do what he wants me to do. And it's true for you as well. Know yourself. Then the next item is walk in the Spirit. You could have thought, and probably maybe I might have been more simple in just saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me interpret that command. It's the only time it's found in the entire Bible in Ephesians 5.18, and this is a good translation of it. Y'all keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the word filled means controlled. When you look at the way in which it's used throughout the New Testament, that's the predominant way of interpreting it. Control by. How does God get control of you and me? We have to yield ourselves to his control. We give him control of our lives. He has said in the New Covenant statement in Ezekiel 30, 
6, 27, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to be careful to do everything I command you. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the power to live the Christian life. Living the Christian life is impossible in and of ourselves, but as we who know Christ have Christ's spirit living in us, and by the way, Paul writes this in Romans 8, 9, he says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. No spirit, no Christ. We know Christ, we have the spirit. And so it's important that we are filled with the spirit. What does this have to do with enduring? Here's what it has to do. Among the fruit of the spirit, the aspects of it, the seventh and the ninth are faithfulness and self-control. In order to finish well, I have to be faithful. You might say, well, Mike, I have fallen, and I might fall again. I might get off in the ditch. Some might, someone might jostle me in the race, and I get focused on that person. I get angry at that person. I can't forgive that person. And I don't want to forgive that person. And I don't think God can forgive me of that or give me the power to do it. Well, you're thinking wrongly. What God wants you to do is imitate Christ. You have him living in you. Was he a forgiver? By all means, he was an eminent forgiver. When he was on the cross, the first thing which he said from the cross to the Father in prayer, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. About whom was he speaking? He's speaking about the men who were crucified him, who crucified him. That's who he's speaking about. He's talking about that gang of people who conspired against him, the religious leaders who mocked him and spit upon him. All those people, Father, forgive them. He lives in us, which enables us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Here's another thing. Ignore the praise of men. It's nice to say thank you to a person, encourage a person. But the Bible says in the book of Proverbs 27, 21, it says to us that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by the praise he receives. So when God uses you, it's because you have humbled yourself before him, and you have asked God to give you the power that you don't have. Have any of you ever had that request? I mean, I've offered that request, I don't know how many thousands of times in my life as a follower of Christ. I don't feel like I can do anything, and Jesus says, you're right, Mike, you can't. But through me, you can do whatever I give you to do. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I believe that, and I operate on that basis, and that's because the Lord says that's the basis of my living the Christian life. Through him, I can do whatever he gives me to do. I'm talking about through Christ and by the Spirit. Without him, I'm a lost cause, but sometimes he uses me, and after the fact, sometimes people acknowledge the Lord spoke to me through you today or ministered to me through you today in some way and 
It's one very short step by knowing that God did it and my beginning to take credit for it myself. And we have to always be on guard in this regard. In Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Wow, I've done my share of that. But it's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. In John 12, 43, this is what the writer says about a group of guys who were the Pharisees. They were religious sort. They were even leaders within the broader context of governance of Israel. And they didn't come out. They believed Christ, but they were holding back. The reason being was because they desired the approval of people more than they did the praise of God. Be careful. Be grateful. Don't be super spiritual and not say thank you if someone compliments you about whatever you do in the name of the Lord. But on the other hand, don't take it too seriously, not because the person is just blowing smoke. That happens too. But because you really know it's not I who did it, but the Lord did it. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, Paul writes. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the of. Notice the King James translation, which I believe is the best of all the translations based on what the original language says. The, the, the life that I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who lives in me. Who is he? Jesus lives in us, and he wants to live his life through us. The hardest thing for you and me to do is let go of the control of our lives. We try to figure everything out and fix everything when we really have no power to do that. We have the Lord by the Spirit living in us, and we trust him for that. Here's another thing that I've learned that's important that will help you to finish well endure to the end, and that's to learn to rest. Wow, that sounds good about this moment. I'm ready to rest. In Mark 6, 31, this is what the Bible says in Mark 6, 31. Jesus says it to his apostles. They'd been out on a tour of ministry, and they'd seen God's Spirit work mightily through them. And when they arrived back at headquarters, they were still being ganged by people. And Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And then parenthetically, the writer of the Gospel of Mark says, because people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. He knew they were going to burn out. They needed to learn to rest. Have you learned to rest in your walk with the Lord? Have you learned to do that? God calls us to be men and women who learn to rest. Jesus says in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight and following, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and take my yoke upon you. That means submit to me. That's what that means. The yoke is a symbol of submission. Team up with me. Let me pull this team. 
He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The word learn is the verb from which the New Testament word disciple comes. Be discipled by me and you shall find rest for your souls. This is Christ's call to our life. Learn to rest. The next thing is confront the facts of your reality. Now, what am I saying there? In Matthew 6.34, listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So do not worry. Really, the form of the verb means stop worrying. They were worrying. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Is there anyone here besides me who has the habit of worrying about tomorrow? And what happens when we worry about tomorrow? Well, we cut our lives short, frankly. It's a scientifically proven fact. Worry is a killer. But beside that, we miss the opportunities which are ours today. Remember what the scripture says. We read it from Psalm 139. All the days that were written for me were ordained in your book before there was one. Today, what God wanted me to do, and I don't even know what the rest of the day holds, but I'm sure if I'm walking in the Spirit and I'm trusting the Lord, He will make me alert to those opportunities and they will be in the form of people whom he brings into my life that he would like for me to care for in some way. That's it. And what we need to do is we need to realize, stop worrying about tomorrow, for tomorrow, Jesus says, will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Is that true? Have you got enough trouble today? Why borrow trouble from tomorrow? You may not even live that long, right? Live today. Be sure to handle those things that God shows you that need to be dealt with in your life today. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, confess your sin and believe what God says. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to do what? To, to cleanse you or purify you from all unrighteousness, not just a little bit. Not just 80%, all. If you come clean before the Lord, he will clean you up. And so you can go forward. Confront the facts of your reality today. Okay, here's another thing. Surround yourself with people of faith. I like this one especially. There are so many people who are so-called Christians who don't walk by faith. It's a shame. Not shame on you if you don't, but just a shame because you don't know that that's your, really your birthright to walk by faith, to follow Christ. And it enables you to rise above all the muck and mire of this world. And it's real. It's real. All this stuff down here. But God wants us to rise above it so we're not determined by it. And we can find relief and freedom in that, in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's favorite church, I think, was the church at Philippi. And they were a church which were a source of great joy to him. He says, it is right for me to feel this way since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I love all of you with the affection of Christ. 
He loved them, and they were so much a source of joy. He loved being with them. I like being around people of faith, people who live it out, people who are real, people who are truly spiritual. Let me tell you this. The most spiritual people you will know are the most real people. They own the fact that they've got problems, but they're not going to be defined by their problems because they defer them to Christ. They look away from their problems. They look to Jesus. They listen to Christ. They do what Christ tells them to do, and they are reminded of who Christ has made them to be. That's our great blessing, isn't it? We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. So find somebody in your life who is a man or a woman of faith. But more importantly, be that person to others. This, this is quite the answer to all of our problems in this life, really. Be a man or woman of faith. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the Word of God or the Word of Christ. And that's where we began, isn't it? Cultivate the habit of listening. And faith comes when you listen. And we're to live the life out that God has given us. What a wonderful life. Look, the Christian life is awesome if it's properly understood and lived properly. There's nothing like it. The world has nothing that even comes close to it. And we need to rise up as the body of Christ and live in dependence on the Lord in that way. Here's another one. Do the work of an evangelist. When I think of evangelist, the word, I think of one person, Billy Graham. Some of you don't even know who Billy Graham is, and that's no problem. Some of you know the name from the west coast of Greg Laurie. He's a great evangelist. There probably are some in the room who came to know Christ listening to him preach the gospel. Some of you don't know who Greg Laurie is. If you're young enough, some of you will know the name Greg uh, Giglio, Louis Giglio. He's an evangelist. He's a pastor, but he's really an evangelist. And God gives these evangelists, but please don't misunderstand. When the Bible talks about do the work of an evangelist, we don't even know for sure that Timothy had the gift. But that's beside the point. He's to do the work, and so are we. It's not for preacher types only. It's for us. We have the privilege to shod our feet with the gospel of peace. And we have the great privilege of walking with a great throng of such people who have shod their feet with the gospel of peace. This is figuratively speaking, of course. And we can join them in what Paul predicts in Romans 16. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you want to be part of defeating the devil? Then the answer is clear as to how that would happen. We are to be men and women who share the faith that God has given. Share the gospel. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The gospel is dynamite. It has the power to change the hardest heart and to save anybody who responds properly to the gospel. Here's the next and the last one, just to give you a little relief here. Memorize Scripture in order to meditate on Scripture. 
Very few of us have the opportunity, I would be one who does have this opportunity, to open the Bible at any point of any day in the course of my work. I've been given that privilege, and I'm grateful for it. But many of you can't do that. You can't keep your Bible open and read verses all day long while you're doing your job. It's just beyond possibility. So how does this work? Here's how it works. Memorize some of God's Word. You say, well, there's thousands and thousands of verses in the Bible. Mike, how can I memorize God's Word? One verse at a time. Just one verse. Ask the Lord to show you as you're listening to Him and you're reading. Ask Him to give you from time to time a verse and you can make it your own. You can trust God for it. And you're being equipped. And throughout the day, when you're in between times when you have to be totally focused on what you're doing in your work, whether it's at home or at school or in your workplace, and what you can do, you can meditate on it. And maybe you're confronted with some sort of temptation like Jesus was in the wilderness. And he said when he was tempted the first time, what did the devil try to get him to do? To turn stones into bread. And what did he do? He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How did he come up with that? I would suggest he was meditating on it at that time in the temptation. You know why? Because he responded to every temptation with an appropriate verse, and all of them came out of the same part of the book of Deuteronomy. I would suggest to you he was meditating on the book of Deuteronomy, which equipped him for the moment of his temptation. Awesome. And Joshua 1.8 says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. If you want to be prosperous and successful, we're not talking about by the world standards. It's not a sin to have wealth. It's not a virtue to be poor. God gives us what he knows he wants us to have individually. But when the Bible talks about prosperity here, it's not talking about physical wealth or physical health. It's not wrong to be well. Thank God for health and wealth to the level that he gives it to us. We all are wealthy, comparatively speaking, to the rest of the world for sure. It's what we do with what he gives us. But this kind of prosperity and success is something that is independent of any kind of circumstance in your life because it's dependent upon the Lord. And what does the Bible say about the Lord? What does the Lord say about himself? In the book of Malachi, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. The writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have him, we have everything we need. But we meditate on God's word. Now I'm going to finish with what I would call a bookend to where I began. I believe this section of scripture And God willing, in a few months, maybe less than that, we'll be looking at this in detail, is to be found in the 15th chapter of the book of John, where Jesus says, I'm the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine, you, meaning us, you are the branches. He who abides in me depends on me like a branch depends on a vine for its life. What has to happen for a branch to bear fruit? The life of the vine comes through that connection with the branch and the fruit is born by the vine through the branch. This is the Christian life. 
the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, so forth. And then people who come to know Jesus through us when we have this kind of walk with the Lord. When we're persevering, we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're following Jesus. We're filled with the Spirit. And the natural overflow, really better said, the supernatural overflow of that is people's lives are changed through us. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus says this, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So how do we honor the Lord? By bearing fruit. How do we bear fruit? By abiding in Christ. What does that mean? The life of Jesus, we talked about it. We've looked at many suggestions of this in Scripture. He's in us as we abide in him. And he flows his life through us. And he's the one who brings life through us. He's the one who gives us life. I'd like to finish by reading just a simple conclusion, which I have written out here. Do you want to endure to the end? I know you do. You wouldn't have sat so still so long if you didn't. At the end of his life, Paul wrote, I have finished my course, my race. And Paul's course was full of temptations to quit. I have, in my mind, quit a lot of times. But by God's grace, he's picked me up and helped me get back on track. And it's by doing some of these, if not all of these things that I have shared with you today. May God enable us to join the great apostle by enduring to the end. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the word, how instructive your word is to us. Thank you for letting us hear your voice through the word. And we're asking now, Lord, that you'd empower us to be everything you want us to be for your glory as we abide in Christ and bear much fruit that remains. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before you leave, I have one.